0: Really, really magnificent moment. Privilege um, to be here with these ambassadors for Christ. Uh, different people groups, different parts of the world, same gospel message because the needs are the same. Separation from Creator God, and here they go, these people, at great personal sacrifice in order to be useful to God and win many to the faith. Real privilege to be here with you. God bless you all, and we shall pray. We can't necessarily do what they're doing, but we can sure help them go and stay and be safe and be fruitful by being faithful to pray for them. I'll tell you why they do this, really, at the root of it all. They believe that Jesus died. They're right about that. He did. Uh, They believe that the evidence of it was that he was buried. They're right about that as well. But then for them, that's not the end of the story that Jesus died and was buried. No, they believe there's a glorious chapter after it, and that is that he rose up from death. In fact, when he did, he gave evidence of it to many people in diverse circumstances. And I hope you enjoyed the text before us tonight because it's an example of his post-death death appearance. This is the first time Jesus having suffered the throes of crucifixion and then was buried. This we'll read now in John's gospel chapter 20. This is the first episode in which the Lord Jesus reveals himself to be alive from death and you may be surprised to see he did so first to a woman and her name was Mary. Take a look with me. It's in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. John 20, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb. Here's what she was doing. She was weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. It's not the first time she was there. You know about this. She was one of the first to the tomb. Previously, she went to finish the work of others who were anointing the Lord's body as a burial custom, but it appears she came back and she was stooping and she was looking, but she was not seeing the one whom she loved because he set her free. She was not seeing the Lord's body and as a result, she was weeping about it. But though she did not see him, she did see something else and we're told what? In verse 12, She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. I wonder if this is reminiscent to you of another event. It's recorded for us way back in the Old Testament, where there were two angels also facing one another. It's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 25 where the Lord gave instructions for the construction of the Ark of the Covenant which was to be placed in the holy place. Here's what it says. Exodus 25 verses 17 to 19. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim angels of gold Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And so these are the instructions God gave for the instruction of the Ark of the Covenant. On top of it was supposed to be the mercy seat. And one of the features were these two cherubim, these two angels facing one another. They were made of pure they were placed on the mercy seat that was the place where one would find mercy and forgiveness sorely needed and now in our text in John I just wonder if God is saying in a very creative way there's a far better mercy seat now it's the reality of the Lord's crucified resurrected ascended body And I wonder if the Lord is showing us, as these two new angels are juxtaposed in the text, they are facing one another. I wonder if he's saying, no, the Lord, coming to the Lord Jesus, that's where you find mercy and forgiveness today. And they, according to verse 13, the angels, they said to her, Woman, some say that was a critical term, a derogatory term. No, 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 they're missing it. It actually was a respectful term. They said, Woman, why are you weeping? Uh, accept this if you, if you think it's acceptable. To me, the reason they asked the question is because there's an implication that she should not be weeping. When they asked the question, why are you weeping? I think the implication is she was engaged in an activity they didn't think she needed to be. Why did they think she need not be weeping? Well, it's because her tears were based on a very false assumption You see, she she saw the empty tomb and came to the wrong conclusion. She assumed that the Lord's body had been stolen. This was a grievous thing to her because she came to pay respect to his body. But if Mary had known the real reason for the reality of the empty tomb, I don't think she would have been weeping sorrowful tears at all. Uh, But she said to them, because they have, they, whoever the they is, they have taken away my Lord. And. I don't know where they have laid him. Can you see Mary did not comprehend the uh, wondrous uh, resurrection at this point? She was not anticipating it at all. She thought the Lord had been crucified. End of story. And now, uh, to add to the indignity of it all, now his body wasn't even there. Well, when she said this, verse 14... She turned around. I wonder why she did at that moment. Could it be that one of the angels gestured? I don't know. She turned around, and here's what happened. She saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. A lot of people find that perplexing. How could she not know it was Jesus? Of course, you understand uh, the resurrection body of the Lord probably looked entirely different than his crucified body. His crucified body was bruised and bloodied and pierced through. That's the last recollection Mary had of her beloved Lord. But now he appeared differently in his resurrection. body. I could see where it would be hard for her to recognize him. But on top of it, I don't think she could see the Lord Jesus through her tears. She was crying. She was caught up with the sorrow of the moment and missed the Lord right there standing by. I find Mary's response to be like ours oftentimes. The throes of life overwhelm us. We too feel abandoned, alone. We're grieving loss, perhaps. While we're caught up in it all, which is understandable, I wonder if we miss the nearness and accessibility of the Lord Jesus Christ who, as with Mary, stands by ready to be leaned on, ready to be depended on. Well, Jesus said to her, verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Well, and so we see he asked the exact question the angels previously did, but it was a little different now. He asked not only that question, he asked the second one. First he said, as did the angels, why are you weeping? And now, even before she had an opportunity to answer, he asked the second question, whom are you seeking? I think he did that because her answer to the first question, why are you weeping, was very dependent on her answer to the second question, who are you seeking? Folks, are you willing to admit that uh, anybody who's seeking after something or someone other than the living risen Lord Jesus ultimately will end up weeping? and in sorrow and so this is a quite a legitimate question if however one is seeking yes the crucified but now risen Lord and ascended Lord Jesus well that one's sorrow that one's weeping one day will be turned absolutely to joy you know this passage don't you in Revelation 21 it's such a beautiful expression of truth verse 4 and he, that's the Lord Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's as if he has this, this divine handkerchief. I'm, I'm sure it's not actually true, but I like to think about this. And when we come upon him and uh, life has hurt, it's as if he removes this handkerchief from his pocket and personally ministers to each of us who are weeping and sorrowful. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and Well, there won't be any longer this reality called death. In fact, there'll no longer be any mourning, crying, pain, because the first things, the reality of this present life will have passed away. And so Mary was weeping because, well, she was not seeking him rightly. She was seeking a dead Jesus, a dead Savior, you see. But she needed to seek a risen Savior, And if she did, and if we do, well, we will find the solution to all of our hopelessness, despair, and problems. And so Mary's tears, the angels knew it, the Lord knew it, were unfounded, really. That's why both the angels and the Lord himself put to her the same question. Why are you weeping? And so she was weeping because she was looking only for the dead body of her Savior. And that's because, once again, she didn't yet fully comprehend the wonders of the resurrection because belief in the resurrection would have given her immediate joy, and not sorrow, immediate hope, not despair. I hope that's the case with you and I as well. He's risen, he's alive, and we could depend on him. Well, supposing him to be the gardener, this is what the text says. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I'll, I'll take him away. Well, she's, she's devoted to the Lord. We really have to acknowledge this and give Mary credit. But she doesn't yet believe this Lord to whom she is devoted is actually risen from the dead. And so in her grief, she misses her risen Savior who stands there right in her presence. And she supposes the one speaking to her is the gardener. Well, Jesus said to her in verse 16, Mary, she turned and She said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which we're told means teacher. Her eyes failed her, but not her ears. She heard one word. It was her name. It wasn't her name. It was the way it was expressed. It was the tone of it. She was familiar with it. She was persuaded immediately that the one expressing it was none other than her beloved Lord Jesus, obviously alive from the dead. He said, Mary... If I can step away from the principal point of the text just for a moment, he actually didn't say Mary. He said Miriam, It was a very common Hebrew name in the day, taken after Moses' sister, It was an important name. And so she was named Miriam, not Mary. We don't do Mary, folks. That's British or something. Her name is Miriam. Is it okay if I say, I really resent the translation? Even if you look to the Greek New Testament, it will say Miriam. It doesn't say Mary. How did we get Mary? Could I offer this theory? I think it's somewhat informed. There was a time when those who were handling translation work thought the Bible was too Jewish. And therefore, let's just deal with that. And so they changed things like Yehudah or Judah to Jude. Jude? That's a guy's name in a Beatles song. That's not a Hebrew's name. They changed the Yaakov or Jacob to James. They changed Mary to Miriam. Well, the interest of, in the interest of biblical accuracy, let me just tell you, she didn't hear him say Mary, or she would have been perplexed. Who are you talking to is what this Jewish woman would have said. But when he said Miriam, oh, that got her attention. Why? Why was there such a profound basis of recognition at that point? Well, it's because of what John said earlier uh, in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. You know about this? And I know them, and they follow me. And so for Mary, uh, a seeing was not believing, but hearing was... And that's because Mary was a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and a devoted follower of the Lord responds to his word. That's one of the distinctions of being a disciple of Christ. When we hear his word, that's where we go. His word means something to us. It's a value. Now, don't miss this. The first person to see the risen Christ is Mary, (laughs) Miriam. He revealed himself after his death to her first. And I'll tell you why this is so unusual. This is Mary Magdalene. That's not her last name. It means Mary from Magdala, which was a town small on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can visit it today. It's being unearthed more and more, even as we speak. It's an important place, but it wasn't a large place. So she was from Galilee in kind of a small town. On top of it, this Mary undoubtedly lived a life of sin. Some say she was a prostitute. Do you know we have absolutely no biblical evidence to support that? That's a conclusion that we're jumping to. It is clear, however, that she probably lived a sordid life life because she was possessed by no less than seven demons, and demons gain entree into our life when we sin. So undoubtedly, there was a time in her life when there was a an unrepented of pattern of sin, and the consequence was that she was under the influence of demons, and then this Lord Jesus, who is far greater, set her free. And so, oh my goodness, she never got over that. She loved him for it. But she was kind of an ordinary person, down and out from a small town with a sordid past, and on top of it, don't miss this. She was a woman. And in that day, do you know that the testimony of women in courts of law was not attached very much credibility at all? I, I, I'm i expanding on this point because I don't think we should, we should miss this. It was to Mary that the resurrected Lord Jesus first revealed himself, a woman from kind of a country bumpkin woman from Galilee and with a sordid past, a rather sorrowful and, Hopeless woman, would you have done this? Don't you think it would have been cooler if the Lord Jesus, risen from the death, marched into Pontius Pilate's office and said, look at me now. What if he went to the Jewish high priest and said, take a look? Don't you think at the least it would have been wiser and more befitting for him to have revealed himself alive from the dead to the 11 remaining disciples who were males? None of it happens. He reveals himself to a sorrowful lady not high on the social strata. And why does he do it? Well, the Lord Jesus, I think, is pretty much in the business of confounding our expectations and so we read you remember this in first corinthians 1 27, god has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and god has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong it's just the way he is he turns our social cultural expectations upside down Jesus, the Savior, reveals himself first to a hopeless woman. You could imagine that this hitherto hopeless, sorrowful lady, consumed with sorrow and weeping to the extent that her vision was obstructed, you can see when she finally recognized her risen Savior, she probably, I'm reading this into this, but I, I don't think it's a stretch, she probably fell at his feet and probably grabbed onto the lower part of his legs with this intent never to let him go again. And as a result in verse 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. This is so perplexing because just a few verses down the road in verse 27, He seems to invite Thomas to do the very thing he's telling Mary not to do. Look, then he said to Thomas, verse 27 this is, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Why did he invite Thomas to do what he seems to have told Mary not to do? Well, don't don't miss it. Um, He is not telling Mary not to touch him. I know some translations say that. Please forgive me for being a little critical. It's a mistranslation. This is called durative action in the original Greek. It's not that he couldn't touch her. He didn't want her to continue to cling to him. That's what he is saying here. Stop doing what you're already doing. Why? Well, because the risen Lord Jesus was not here to stay. He was going to ascend back to his father. And this would be better in the end for Mary and for all of his followers, even like us. You see, while he, the Lord Jesus, remained here, they, we, would only have his physical presence. But if he ascended into heaven, ah, we would have his spirit in us. That's exactly what he did when he went to the Father. The Holy Spirit was sent. Are you a follower of Christ? And you're indwelt by that very Holy Spirit now. Now we can understand why Mary did not want to let him go. She had thought she had lost him forever. He was dead. He was gone. That's it. But now her intense sorrow was suddenly turned to inexpressible joy. She saw her savior alive from the dead and she was probably thinking, I, I don't want to lose him again. But this too, she didn't really understand fully. She didn't know that she would be far better off if he ascended back to the father because there he would begin to intercede for her and all the rest of us. That's exactly what he's doing right now. And again, as I mentioned, he would send his spirit Which one? Well, the Holy Spirit to indwell each of us wherever we are and whatever our situation is. Mary wanted simply to linger at the Lord's feet, but the Lord, you see, had something for her to do. And therefore she needed to let go of him and get about the business of doing what he wanted her to do. And here it is. Go to my brethren. That's what it says go to my brethren. By the way, this is the first time in all of John's gospel uh, that the followers of the Lord are referred to as brethren. Why is that? Because the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord changes radically our relationship with him. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11, for both he who sanctifies, that's the Lord Jesus, and those who are sanctified, those are his followers, are all from one father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. This is the first time it occurs in John's gospel. Anyway, here's his mission for Mary. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Mary if it was left up to her, would have continued to cling to the Lord and stay in that marvelous, worshipful moment, probably indefinitely. But the one whom she worshipped had a message for her to deliver to others. And though, as I mentioned, the law courts would not respect or recognize the testimony of a woman, well, the Lord Jesus surely would, and therefore he made Mary. He made a woman the first witness of his resurrection. We too are to come together, figuratively speaking, to sit at the Lord's feet, worship him, and song, and impartation of the word, and all the rest, but we're not supposed to linger too long in that worship place. No. We're supposed to go from it, and do as Mary did, go out and tell people about the risen Lord Jesus. And so, We read, this is exactly what she did in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, the male disciples, by the way, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Folks, herein lies, I think, the very essence of Christianity, the pronouncement, I have seen the Lord. A Christian is one who can say, I have seen the Lord the Lord. Christianity, you see, doesn't merely mean knowing about Jesus. It means knowing Jesus. I have seen the Lord. A Christian knows with certainty that Jesus is alive. A Christian worships this living Savior, but then that Christian stands ready to tell others about him. We've heard about Brother Jerry's experience with his team in Argentina, we heard about Benoit, David, Victor, and their marvelous passion and interest in telling people in Africa, both those who can't hear and those who can. Children, we've heard from Benoit, and adults. They feel compelled to go and tell others, just as Mary did, because they too could say... We have seen Jesus. Boy, I hope you take up Jerry and his team on this marvelous offer. You may feel inadequate. Don't feel ashamed. But you may feel a little inadequate about sharing the gospel with your neighbors. But you have something Jerry's team doesn't have. Neighbors. (laughs) Your neighbors, you have that relationship. Maybe you can parlay that into an opportunity to have one of Jerry's team's come and tactfully, discreetly, patiently share the gospel. It's the mark of a true born again one. First you have the private, personal, vital, and transforming experience of saying, I have seen Jesus, but if that's the case you really can't keep it to yourself, and a Christian knows with certainty, just as Mary, that Jesus is alive and The Christian worships him and then stands ready to leave a worship posture and go out and tell the world. Mary was changed, as someone said, from a mourner to a missionary when she met the living Lord. This is our calling as well. Last week we heard from marvelous missionaries with our missions board preparing to go to a very challenging field. They're so well trained and equipped and all the rest, but let's let's not separate ourselves from them. We're all, like Mary, called to be missionaries. We're on mission. Every one of us who has seen the risen Savior with eyes of faith now has the privilege of telling others. Now let me leave you with this closing thought if you don't mind. Uh, It was Mary who was clinging to the Lord such that he said, stop doing it, I must ascend. And uh, as a side thought, it occurred to me, if Mary did that, it proves to me she was holding onto a real physical body, <laughs> uh, not an apparition, not a ghost, not a hallucination. It, it was a literal uh, physical body, that was crucified, that of the Lord Jesus. It was a literal physical body that was buried, that of the Lord Jesus. It was a literal physical body that was raised up from death, that of the Lord Jesus. And here's what we read in other parts of Scripture. It will be a literal physical body who returns. Could I ask you this, and I don't mean to strike fear into anyone's heart, just an opportunity. Are you ready to meet Jesus when he literally, physically, bodily returns? Oh, in all glory and power. Do you think I'm bragging if I tell you I'm not only ready, I'm anxious for the moment? I'm not ready because I've achieved sinless perfection or possess virtue greater than anyone here. I'm ready for the second coming because by God's grace, I have found myself being enabled to respond rightly to his first coming. You see, if you don't respond rightly to his first coming, you're not prepared for his second coming. In his first coming, he came to judge sin, but in his second coming, he comes to judge sinners. In his first coming, he came humble and mounted on a donkey, a symbol of peace, but in his second coming, we read, he comes on a white horse, a symbol of a conquering hero. In his first coming, he came rather temporarily, but in his second, he comes permanently. We hope here that there be not one person here or even listening in who has moved too quickly past the significance of the Lord's first coming. The Lord Jesus came to take care of all that has to be taken care of in order that people like you and me and Mary could be in a peaceful relationship with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. Jesus paid it all. It's a song we sing, and we sing it because it expresses truth. Jesus paid it all. In fact, he uttered words that, that are consistent with the song. He said, it is finished. He said, he said, paid in full, a debt we owe a holy God, and boy, do we ever, for we have offended his holiness. We've sinned in thought, word, or uh, deed, the best of us, has done so, therefore we owe him a debt. We we could not satisfy, not by being Baptists or anything else. Oh no, no, for all have sinned, you see, and fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus paid the penalty, think of it, for our own sin. And and it was successful, as is indicated, by his resurrection. The father vindicated the son's offering, uh, By him rising from the dead. No other pretender to the throne can lay claim to that. He did all this during his first coming. It isn't about coming to church, is it? It's about coming to Jesus. It isn't about knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus, as Mary did. It's about being able to proclaim, "Ah, I have seen Jesus with the eyes of my heart and, and my faith. If you have not yet made that decision, we would love to spend a few moments with you as we take leave of one another right back there. It's a room we call the Connection Center. Therein we'd like to connect with you and help you maybe overcome whatever it is that's keeping you from being connected to the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please don't walk away from the Lord Jesus. Mary missed him for a spell. Don't miss him much longer than you need to. You see, he stands near, ready, ready, ready to do for us just what he did for Mary. And then to put us into use to solve our problem of purposelessness forevermore. What is my purpose, oh God? And he declares, I think loudly, if I could put words in his mouth, your purpose is to know me and then to make me known what a grand and glorious purpose it is. I hope you don't miss out on it. In fact, Lord Jesus, that's our prayer, that there be nobody here this evening or looking in who misses out on the opportunity to find peace and purpose, forgiveness, At the grand mercy seat, far better than the glorious one, which existed in solid gold in the temple of old, but it was only a foreshadowing of the far greater place of mercy. It's the reality of your broken and bruised body, then enlivened from death, ascended to heaven, coming to you, Lord Jesus, is the marvelous mercy seat available to us all. I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would move in the hearts of anybody who still yet has not made the decision to come to Jesus. Thank you, O God, for the good news message that as bad as we have lived, like Mary, you stand willing to make us new in a relationship with you. And we pray, oh God, nobody would walk away from that tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.